This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And today is the 27th of December, so Merry Christmas to all the listeners and happy 2018 coming around the corner. Today, we are super excited to be joined by power lawyer, recurring guest, superstar, Sean Buckley. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for having me. And please excuse my laryngitis, holiday laryngitis. You're screaming for a great year that you've had. Is that what this is all about? That's how it happened. Yes. (laughs) So you really have had an amazing year and and the listeners are going to get to hear a pretty heroic story about how you basically saved somebody's life. Now, they weren't on death row, but but essentially the quality of life for this this Woodlands man was something that you were fighting for and his freedom was what you were fighting for over the last year and a half or so. And so 2017 was a pretty amazing year for you. We had a great year, Andrea. And uh, the, the man you're referring to is Larry Davis, who is a father and husband from the Woodlands, who was falsely accused in the Dominican Republic, uh, for your listeners who may not have been there before, it's a Caribbean nation south of Cuba, near the Virgin Islands, out in that direction, Puerto Rico, <clears throat> falsely accused of smuggling um, 985 kilograms of pure cocaine, which is about a ton. So before we get to the the end which is your victory lap that, that you did for Mr. Davis. Let's talk about kind of the horror story that brought him to be kind of in your contact and how you came to be in contact with Mr. Davis. So first off, um, he's somebody who's about our age, right? Mid-40s. Yeah, yeah, um, in his prime. And he's got a couple kids living a pretty good life. He's in the woodlands where we both have a, an office and, and working hard, right? Right. Uh, he and his father had been in a fuel trading business since 2008. Pretty successful. Together. Right, right. Doing doing fine, doing well. And so um, certainly us in Texas, fuel, oil, we're pretty passionate about that down here. So that wouldn't be an unusual business to get involved in. Nothing unusual at all. And in fact, there were a lot of opportunities in the Caribbean to transport fuel among the different countries and make a profit. And so isn't it Interesting that Mr. Davis basically, like a lot of people who are self-employed or what have you, uh, you know, you have something personal come up and you have to direct your attention to something besides your business. Right. And in this case, Larry's mother was diagnosed with with a form of cancer that the doctors believe was terminal. And as it turned out, it was, in fact. So Larry and his father decided to put the fuel trading business on hold for a little while so they could spend uh, their time in in their mother and wife's last days. So essentially, they have this successful business. They're working together. Also, part of the American dream is you're going to work with your parents if you, if you yes. like your parents. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think both of us do also still like our parents. So that's right. that's good. But um, but in this case, Larry had basically made this very solid move as a as a son and as a father great role model to say, you know what, I'm going to put the business on hold and I'm going to focus on family. Exactly. And so what they did was they decided to lease out their main fuel trading vessel, which was named the Precon Express One, about a 168 foot vessel that they used to transport fuel. And they decided to lease it out to someone else so they could still get revenue from it while Larry and his father were at home with their mother. Basically like a rental boat 
like you would rent any other piece of property, a vehicle, a boat, a house. It was a standard, what they call, pardon me, in maritime law, a dry lease. All they were leasing was the vessel. They weren't providing any staff, any other services. Here is the vessel. You pay us lease payments to use our vessel and we wash our hands of it until we come back and want the vessel back. Right. And then you expect the vessel to be returned in a similar condition that it was leased. And and you certainly, if the vessel comes back in a different condition than you leased, then there's other remedies available, just like any other thing that you would lease. Exactly. So um, that was the nature of the agreement. Was it a six-month lease? Was it a year lease? What was the term of the lease? You know, I don't recall offhand, but I believe it was a year lease. It was long enough that it would give the Davis family... Uh, a significant time period to spend time together without having to worry about the lease coming up. Was the revenue significant? Was it $10,000 a month? Was it 50? Well, typically for a boat that size, the market rate is about $2,000 a day. And that's what this lease was. I mean, this is a a very large vessel that would cost uh, a substantial amount of money to acquire. And so if someone is leasing it and engaged in a, in a lucrative business like fuel transport, right. then, then the lease pays for itself, even, even at a high rate like that. So essentially $60,000 a month um, is what the potential uh, lease payments would be. Right. And if anything happened to the boat, if there were any mechanical difficulties, of course, the Davises, as the owners of the boat, would handle that. So within that lease payment is a guarantee that the vessel will operate and that any repairs will be done if they need to be. So how did the individual contact Larry Davis to determine um, that he wanted to lease this boat? Did he advertise it through some sort of? uh... Well, that's a good question. And in this case, the fact is very important to the case. This was a, a person named Joseph Hines, who was from Honduras. And the Davis family, in the course of the fuel trading business over the years, had dealt with the Hines family before and knew them and trusted them. And the Hines family was one of the people that the Davises reached out to to say, hey, do you have any interest in leasing this vessel? Um, Because they felt comfortable that the vessel would be in good hands. And so it wasn't certainly a situation where they posted an ad out on Craigslist and and anything along those lines. It was they, they acquired the leasee through contacts and through personal um, relationships that they had built over their practice. And they had every reason to believe that the person leasing the boat was going to not only pay the lease, but do what they expected them to with the vessel. Right. And and, and implicit in that, of course, is that they're using the vessel for some lawful purpose, not drug trafficking. Right, exactly. So um, certainly at the time they entered into the lease, they had no idea or expectations that there would be anything nefarious or any foul play right. going on. They just were focused on staying with the family. Exactly. And in fact, every expectation was to the contrary, that everything would be lawful. And so did they pay the full term of the lease up front or was it a, was it a, they paid as the lease came up, they paid every 30 days? I believe it was a 30 day increment um, or, or installment. I don't recall exactly, but (coughs) but it would not have been paid in advance. It would have been paid as time goes by, which would also reflect the revenue stream of the person who was leasing the vessel. Well, and certainly um, as a side note, it would be difficult to evict somebody for not paying a lease on a leased vessel versus a house where you could show up and try to evict them. There are actually ways that you can do it. And and I've learned a lot about maritime law and about the practical side of, of managing vessels. 
you can use any number of databases and punch in the ship's name and find out where it is anywhere in the world, any ocean, they'll tell you whether it's ported, whether it's at sea. And if it's, at, if it's ported, you can get an order with that country to seize the vessel. If there's, if there's an ownership or, um, or a rearage uh, issue. Over the lease payments right. or what have you. So this was not at all a luxury vessel as, as far as the people on the vessel would not be um, hiring a crew for boating or right. skiing or anything along those lines. It's specifically right. uh, I would say the only luxury is uh, not drowning. <laughs> okay, if, so it's, it has to be seaworthy. Is, right. is the imp- and, it, and it can transport a high volume. Is yes. that fair to say? Yes, a high volume of, of diesel fuel. Okay. Um, not cocaine, which is ultimately what the vessel was used for. Well, it, apparently it can transport <laughs> right. a high volume, but that was certainly not the intent. That was not the intent. Okay, so just to kind of get the folks who are listening to understand, um, and before we take a break, Larry Davis, father, family man, he's got two kids, he has a sick mom in business with his dad, decides to lease out his vessel and uh, seafaring vessel where he used to transport fuel to Gary, to Mr. Joseph Hines. Joseph Hines. Okay. And um, we'll get to what's going on with Joseph Hines next. But when he makes this lease payment, when he makes this lease agreement with Joseph Hines, things go wrong. Almost immediately. Almost immediately after he received his first payment. Um, And he's trying to spend time with his sick mother who has some dire health issues. He he um, <clears throat> he returns home to be with his family at the end of 2015, early 2016, almost right away after the new year. He is at home with his family in the woodlands, gets a call from Dominican authorities through a, uh, a shipping contact that he had there and said, look, your vessel has been uh, impounded and seized and law enforcement is involved, and we want you to come down and discuss it with us. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors, and we're going to hear back after the break about what happened after Larry Davis, Larry Davis, also known as Harold Larry Davis from the Woodlands, received a phone call from the Dominican Republic regarding his vessel. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. You can hear us on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. And if you tune in after the break, you're going to hear what happened next to Larry Davis with esteemed defense attorney, Sean Buckley. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. This is no big deal. Don't forget to download the Lone Star Community Radio app from your Google Play or Apple Store. Bring Montgomery County's community radio with you anywhere with your smartphone or tablet. If you are in the Conroe area, tune in on FM. That's Conroe's FM 104.5, 106.1. If you are on the computer, bookmark IRLoneStar.com as your internet radio station. A Lone Star Community Radio, broadcasting 24-7 from the heart of downtown Conroe, Texas. This is Andrea Kolsky, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. 
And we're joined again by esteemed published author, federal criminal defense attorney, author of O'Connor's Federal Criminal Rules and Codes. And may I say, a great author at that. What a great publication. Thanks, Andrea. And thanks again for having me on. How many, what what year are we in the publication? Are we in the fourth edition, the fifth edition? We are in, we started in 2010. So we are coming up on eight. I just finished the edits on number eight. The eighth edition of the O'Connor's Federal Criminal Rules and Codes. So every time something new comes in, in the federal world, you're a part of putting it in your book. It goes in the book because our book is designed for lawyers who practice in federal court. Use the book as a quick reference to resolve legal issues that, that we all might not know off the top of our head. And the nice thing about your book is that it breaks it down with, with current case law and, and really gets the lawyer streamlined with the cutting edge of everything that's happening in the federal courts across the, the country. Right. That's our goal is, is not just to state what the rule is, but to give some background about how the courts have resolved the different conflicts that might come up in a courtroom so that the lawyers can have that quick reference. So in addition to your authorship and your skills there, you're also a very well-trained and successful criminal defense lawyer in the courtroom. I, I'm glad that I didn't have to pay you to say that. <laughs> um, well, no, I've been doing this almost 20 years. You have like, a lot of success and I've had the opportunity to know you for the last two decades and you've just made a great difference in a lot of people's lives. And if you're just joining us with this portion of the show, the person that we're talking about whose life I know you really touched and is going to remember you forever from 2017 is a young man, middle-aged. I'd like to consider us still young, so young-ish, a man named Larry Davis. Generation Xer. (laughs) Generation youngish, Larry (laughs) Davis. And Mr. Davis, uh, if you're just joining us, was engaged in a contract, legitimate lease to lease his boat so he could take care of his sick mother um, to uh, another individual who had different expectations for that boat. And what happened was that he got a call from the Dominican authorities. He didn't think anything of that phone call, did he? No, and and none of us really know who was responsible for putting drugs on this boat. We have our theory, and and our theory is Joseph Hines, the one who leased the boat from him, must have been involved, but none of us know. So going back to your lead-in, Larry was at home with his family over the the new year of 2016, received a call from Dominican authorities via a shipping agent, said, we have your boat impounded and seized, and uh, there's a problem, there's law enforcement involved, and we want to talk to you about it. So had Larry had any knowledge that the boat was being used for illegal purposes, or if he had had any involvement in drug smuggling, well, of course he wouldn't have gone down there after receiving a phone call like that. And, and certainly, if he thought that there was anything that resembled foul play or that resembled something that could be a criminal problem— he wouldn't have showed up without an attorney. Right. But instead, because he's responsible, because he's always done uh, honest and clean business, fuel trading business in the Caribbean for almost a decade, he immediately went down to address the Dominican authorities' concerns about the boat. So basically, it was almost a bait and switch where they say, come in, we're having some problems with the boat. He books a round trip ticket. Am I correct? He, bu- he books a round trip ticket. And, uh, and I'm not even sure I'd call it a bait and switch in the sense that 
Uh, they didn't really tell them one thing. They just left out the part that there were drugs found on the boat. But they were clear that there was a law enforcement issue during an inspection of the boat. So Larry full well knew when he went down there that law enforcement had some kind of issue with the boat. And and nonetheless, he him went. being in, in the Woodlands area knows that I haven't done anything wrong. I'm going to go down there and address whatever the issues are and, and resolve them quickly and, and get back to my mom right. and family. Well, you know, the boat was a significant asset for his family's business. And his concern was, well, if they've seized our vessel, that's our asset. I need to go down and resolve whatever concerns they have about the vessel so that we can get it operating again. And certainly if you have this vessel, which you indicated in the earlier portion of the of the show, that has the capacity or capability of making your family $2,000 a day in revenue, you know, less whatever payments are owed on the boat and less whatever the operating costs are, uh, you know, that's a significant amount of money that you would be losing while the docks, you know, the boat stays in port, useless, essentially. Sure. And anytime you have a vessel that is seized by a foreign government, you always have to be cognizant that this government may have its own rationale for wanting to keep the vessel. And so you always want to be proactive in, in addressing whatever the, the beef is from the government so that they don't seize it and take it. And, and certainly you not being there would be a significant value to the government as to why they would why they would seize it. Well, there's certainly an argument that it's been abandoned if right. no one shows up. But of course, if you're a drug smuggler and you're dealing in the type of quantities that we're discussing here, a, uh, a boat of this type would be an easy write-off. So now let's visit about what was, when he shows up, and I know that, that we talked about it, there's quite a bit of cocaine and there's also some heroin that's on the boat. And we'll get to that bombshell here shortly. But when they get there, does Larry have any idea that he's in trouble or that things are heading south? None whatsoever. Um, but he appears at the dock. He sees law enforcement activity around the boat. They ask him to stay in town. Don't leave. You know, the old thing from the, from the old film noir, uh, cop movies here in the U.S., don't leave town. And so he doesn't. He um, sticks around, talks to the U.S. consulate there in, the, in Santo Domingo, the capital, and retains a local lawyer. They're communicating with the police. What, what do you need from us? What's this about? He reads in the newspaper one morning that this is a drug bust on the boat, and that's the first he hears it. So the first he hears that his boat is involved in any foul play is when he reads it in a local newspaper. Yes, on the front page. Um, is his name mentioned in that newspaper? You know, I don't recall if it was or not, but it was obvious which boat they were talking about. They did name the vessel. Okay, so now wasn't there something that happened at the dock where the leasee was actually there and operating as a translator? Yes, and it became an issue later during the court proceedings about whether Larry had made any statements that would be seen as admitting knowledge or admitting guilt or involvement. And the only one, he doesn't speak Spanish, and Dominicans speak almost exclusively Spanish. And the only one who was acting as a translator between Larry and the officials who were interrogating him was Joseph Hines, who had leased the boat from Larry and who we uh, largely suspect may have been involved in the drug smuggling. Well, he certainly has um, a lot closer ties to the boat and, and its contents than somebody that's in 
in the woodlands trying to take care of a sick mother. Sure. It was under his control at the time of this activity. Well, it's very suspicious that they would allow someone who is basically essentially a co-defendant, um, even in their own version of the events, to translate from one language to another language that would never happen in, in the United States. Or if it did, it would never be admissible or used as evidence. That would be shocking. The Dominicans have a much uh, more flexible set of procedures for interviewing uh, suspects and, and collecting evidence than we do here in the United States. And uh, it was challenging to deal with that. So let's talk about this. So they show up at the dock. They're using this person who leased the dock as a translator about kind who of the, go- the boat. Who leased, excuse me, who leased the boat um, to talk about the goings on. And what, according to your later investigation, do you find out he, this is the leasee, Mr. Hines says that your client said or knows? The big issue became who had control over the boat and whether and what type of lease it was. Um, it was what they call a dry lease. Larry had no control over the boat during the time that it was leased to Joseph Hines. And we believe that in that translation there on the dock with authorities, Joseph Hines mistranslated to give authorities the impression that Larry was acknowledging, hey, yes, I I control this boat during this time period. Basically, what Mr. Hines wanted authorities to think was all the shots and strings were pulled by Larry Davis. That's right. And even though he had a, a clear altruistic motive for not transporting fuel anymore, they they believed the translation because they only received the information from the person who was most likely responsible for everything. Right. Now, I don't think in at the end of the day that that was a, the real critical point about why the Dominicans chose to proceed forward against Larry. I think that there were a number of factors. One of them is that he's, you know, what would be termed there a gringo, an American. And the Dominicans are very hospitable people. Uh, I really enjoyed the time that I spent down there and, and would love to go back. Unless unless we're talking about your visits to the jail, which right. we can talk about that right. also. I hear that that's not the most luxurious place you've ever visited some clients. That, that's true. Um However, in, in Dominican politics right now, there is a, uh, a push to rid the country of corruption, particularly in, the, in this, this widespread belief that uh, foreign drug dealers can buy their way out of problems, whereas the local poor get stuck doing time in prisons. Or they get stuck as the middleman or the, somebody right. in between. So Larry Davis was, in, a, in essence, became a political pawn to some people, is my theory. Um, a, uh, uh, a professional, uh, educated gringo who uh, was an easy target. So the other interesting thing about this is that the person who ultimately leased the boat, who was operating as the translator, who was, you know, by all purposes in control of the crew, who was hired, everything, the day-to-day operations of the boat, that person was ultimately released. Is that correct? Well, he was never detained. And by the time they decided they wanted to detain him, he was nowhere to be found. And to my knowledge, he remains a fugitive. So this, we dial it back to 2016. Is that right? The beginning of 2016, kind of end of February, early March. That's when Larry Davis was detained by Dominican authorities at the airport on his way out to leave on his round trip ticket in March of 2016. So the beginning of March, 2016, he goes there on a routine check. Um, 
what he perceives as, hey, we have, they asked me to be here, I'll be here, doesn't suspect at the time he gets there until he reads the paper that there's foul play. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, when you say he's detained, he's not just stuck in a room and interrogated. He's he's stuck in a in a jail, right? And not only a jail, but they don't particularly distinguish in the DR, Dominican Republic, between pre-trial detention and post-conviction detention. So he was put in a prison with uh, people serving uh, long sentences. So what's interesting about what you say is that they don't distinguish because here in the United in the United States, at least as far as in the in the law that we practice, if someone is arrested on um, a misdemeanor, a felony, awaiting trial, they are put in a jail. Right. And and I always tell people, jail is temporary, prison is permanent. Right. And so what's interesting about that is whenever you know you have these celebrities that are incarcerated and they do three days in jail, the the media likes to report that they're in prison. And I always have to make a correction. Right. They're not in prison. Prison Prison is is temporary. Prison is not temporary. Prison is permanent. Prison is also a more salacious sounding term or harsh sounding term that gets people's attention. But in this case, it was accurate. In this case, you blend the two institutions, which is really, you get the worst criminals also in there with folks that, like your client who actually did nothing wrong. Yeah. And you know, it was kind of a mixed bag about his experience there. Um, He's a man of faith and his faith, I think he would tell you is what got him through this ordeal over the course of uh, over a year. Well, I think probably the faith in his amazing criminal defense attorney, Sean Buckley is, is if we want to put faith in something, it was, I know that he had faith in you and We do need to take break, excuse me, we do need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to hear about not only Larry Davis's detention in a Dominican Republic jail slash prison, uh, the year plus of his life that he lost awaiting charges for something that he didn't do, but ultimately what happened to the Woodlands man who was charged with possession and trafficking of 985 kilos of cocaine, as well as a bunch of heroin. Four kilos of heroin. So almost 100 kilos or kilograms of drugs. It's it's an amazing story. And you'll hear back from attorney Sean Buckley after the break. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. Lone Star Community Radio is Montgomery County's radio station with talk, music, weather, and traffic for Montgomery County. Have a question or comment about one of our shows? Just contact the station on IRLoneStar.com or call in and leave a message at 936-647-3776. Get involved with your community with Lone Star Community Radio. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And you can find us at Justice is Blonde at IRLoneStar.com slash Justice is Blonde. And we're on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. on Conroe's FM 104.5 and 106.1. And you can also find us worldwide and on the Lone Star Internet Radio app, Lone Star Community Radio. If you're just joining us, we're here still with Sean Buckley, esteemed great 
trial lawyer, federal lawyer, author, and he's telling us a heroic story about his defense of a Woodlands man named Larry Davis, who was stuck in the Dominican Republic, went there to check on a lease of a, of a vessel that he had leased to someone that he knew. And when he got there, he opened his eyes to the next year and a half of a nightmare that he got to, to deal with, which is they found that there was 985 kilos of cocaine, pure cocaine, and uh, four kilos of heroin. Right. Uh, street Not value. what he expected to see. No, not at all. Uh, street value on that, by the way, is at least $100 million. So we talked about this at the break, is kind of calculating the value of all these drugs uh, that were seized by the government here. So what happens is when you're calculating the value, at least, you know, what we do is when you're determining what the value is, is you take a gram of cocaine and we give that value $100. And that's how you calculate kind of the street value of what that would be worth. Right. And then, uh, so with one kilo, if if the folks are listening, they may not be as familiar with the drug terminology as we are. That's a thousand grams, one kilogram. Right. And so you take that and that's $100,000 per kilo. Is that about right? I believe that's right. And then you multiply that out times, <coughs> excuse me, that's per kilogram. And that's then. Right. 985. So then we came up with a street value of at least the cocaine of, of nine, $98 million, $98.5 million, and that's before the heroin. And the heroin is going to be much more, uh, not in quantity, but in value per uh, volume. And so the other interesting thing about, about drugs, and certainly a lot of the listeners are not drug users, and, and so that's a good thing, but what happens is when you have pure drugs, there's a way that the users that are the end consumers or the salespeople along the middle way make money, and that's doing what to the drugs? Well, they they, they cut it or they mix it with other items, like um, even things like baking soda or... Um, things that have less value. Things that have less <laughs> value. Sure, almost anything. And so certainly the end quantity of this cocaine, if it had made it into the distribution network of where it was intended to go, it could have been four or five times that value. Sure. Uh, ultimately, when it ended up in possibly our country, whatever country it was destined sure. for. Sure. So a hugely significant fine by the Dominican Republic authorities to find this quantity of drugs traveling out of their country or it, possibly into their country. It's an enormous amount of drugs in one place at one time. And certainly in the United States, if this amount of drugs had been found and a client called you and said, hey, Sean, can you represent me? What would their sentencing guideline range be on a federal level? Well, if they were convicted and if they were held accountable for all of those drugs, that would be a life sentence uh, on paper. So, and isn't it interesting that normally in the federal sentencing guidelines, there's a range of, of punishment? The range in this case would be life to life. So the range would be you can get life or you can get life. Yeah, and on a, on a side note, and not yeah. to belabor this point, but in federal court, that's why so many people become cooperating witnesses is because uh, they have no way out other than a life sentence for drug quantities. And the only way to get their numbers down and, and ever hope to get out again is to provide information and snitch on others uh, with the FBI and, and other federal officials. And then certainly uh, with the federal government, if you cooperate and you provide accurate information, your hope is that your sentence would be reduced by a portion and sure. obviously less than life in this case. Sure. And, you know... Interestingly, and it's not necessarily fair, but it's true, 
that often the more involved you are in a drug conspiracy, the more of a reduction you can get because the more valuable your information is. So certainly if you're at the top of a drug conspiracy and you can point to other players who are equally responsible or even more responsible, that right. could minimize your sentence versus if you're somebody that's kind of a low-level player and they don't really care as much about what you what exactly. you can offer. Exactly. But in this situation, Larry Davis was a no-level player. Right. He was an innocent man, and he is. Um, so he gets detained. He goes to this Dominican Republic facility, jail, prison. What's day-to-day -day in prison like for Mr. Davis? Well, interestingly, um, he, he doesn't speak Spanish, and almost all of the other inmates only spoke Spanish. And so Larry uh, <clears throat> got through on a day-to-day -day level mentally through his, uh, his, his own Christian faith, uh, is I think what he would tell you, but also uh, by his own personal habits. He was a fanatic uh, exercise aficionado and would, uh, they didn't have a weight room or anything like that, but he would make uh, a weight bar dumbbells or barbells from items that he found around the prison. And he would run around the prison yard every day and exercise. And, and I think the other inmates left him alone because they thought he was just a crazy gringo because nobody else there did that kind of stuff. So not only did he just keep believing, you know, I'm going to get out one day. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to stay in shape. What, what was the, didn't he have, um, if any, somebody had a medical issue in the Dominican Republic, how were they treated if, if you know? They really, you know, there wasn't a medical department unless um, somebody got sick, then they would summon a physician who may or may not have a, a legit medical degree. Uh, there was an occasion where, um, because of the drinking water scenario, it was polluted, a cholera outbreak where one of Larry's fellow inmates died. So certainly that would be something that at least the ACLU and American folks and, and lawyers would be up in arms about is that there was not a sustainable or quality drinking source of water at a, a prison. Right. But that was kind of the regular practice was that the water was, was not certainly purified. Well, they had to bring it in in bottles. And I, I will say this uh, as a side note, the conditions in that Dominican prison were awful. Uh, but uh, and people often think, oh, you know, it's it's the Dominican Republic. What do you expect? They're not going to be like we are here. You know, our prisons and jails are so much better. But at the end of the day, I'm not so sure that Larry's experience was was any worse in the Dominican Republic than it would have been if he had been in a state or federal prison or jail here. I think a lot of people really discount how bad it is to be incarcerated here in the United States. Well, I mean, certainly <clears throat> the freedom to go run around and jog and do a right. lap is something that most facilities here are not going to give you the liberty or the freedom to do. Right. right. So, um, there was a certain humanity that I saw intact among the inmates there that I, uh, do not typically see here. Um, they really, um, uh, here in the United States, people are, are dehumanized and, uh, and stamped with a number, uh, in, in this mass incarceration, system that we have. And there, it was a horrific, a squalid environment. But the people seemed to remain human. Dignified. Even to the people who were their guards and keepers. So nonetheless, like you said, it, regardless of where you're incarcerated, when your freedom is taken away, it's absolutely devastating wherever you are. Right. Um, and certainly when you're an innocent person who's facing decades, if not life in prison, for something that you didn't do. 
And Larry, and added to that, Larry, of course, is in the Dominican Republic, and he couldn't receive visits from his wife or his his children. He could have, but the family by that point had become so concerned about the trustworthiness of the Dominican authorities. That, they were afraid they would also right, be detained, or right, who knows what would have happened right, when they got there. Right. And and interestingly and tragically, you know, what started out as a way for Larry to spend time with his mother, who was sick and dying. Um, what happened to his mother when he was locked up? His mother uh, lost her battle with cancer while Larry was in prison, and and she died not knowing whether her son would ever gain his freedom again. And uh, Larry had to learn of her passing uh, while he was in this um, this environment, this alien, uh, horrible, incarcerated environment. So just adding to his complete level of hopelessness. With nobody to console him. And, and without the ability to speak the language even. Right. And and showing emotion in a place like that is a sign of weakness and an invitation to be victimized. Could be potentially dangerous. Sure. So just tragically, um, what started out as what he thought was a good business decision ended up being a cer- certainly terrible situation um, for him. But you got involved. You also worked with the local council. What was the justice system like down there? What was the battle like down there? It's very interesting. Uh, I I came to have a respect and an appreciation for some parts of the Dominican system. They use panels of judges. The the, the more serious the crime, the more judges who sit on the panel, as opposed to juries here in the United States. So there's no system in the Dominican Republic that you're aware of where you can have a jury trial like you can in the United States? There are States? no jury trials. Okay. And so people often here in the United States believe that jury trial is a superior system of, of assessing a person's criminal liability and their sentence. Um, and first of all, I'm a very patriotic American, so I don't want my comments to be taken as, as a negative commentary on our country at all because that's not my intention. No, I don't think that there's I any look- doubt that you're— but I look at it in terms of the my analysis and commentary on how to set up a system. I have great concerns about whether the jury system is accurate and whether it's effective. Well, I know um, you've been on the show before, and interestingly enough, one of the shows that you did before, you were also involved in exonerating an innocent man. But this is an innocent man who was convicted and sent to prison and was had spent nearly two decades there before you actually were able to remove him from prison and, and get him acquitted that way. Right, right. And so that was an example of the jury system failing. Um, but in the Dominican Republic, you know, there's another problem. <clears throat> While the judges may be more experienced in the judicial system and, and better able to assess what's really going on in a case uh, and get to the meat of it, they are also political appointees. And in a country that does struggle with some governmental corruption, that can be troubling. Uh, so you have a, a, in the Dominican Republic a system that may have, um, you know, a superior level of expertise applied to the determination of guilt or innocence and punishment, but uh, a great weakness in terms of whether it's reliable for other reasons. So in this case, 400, excuse me, 985 kilos worth of cocaine, four kilos of pure heroin. How many judges do they... So they staff for this trial? Three judges, the maximum amount at a trial court. So you have three judges, and does Mr. Um, Davis have the benefit of a translator? Yes, he has okay. a translator. Um, in this case, the court court uh, 
provided translator was not very good, but the lead judge understood and spoke English. She would actually correct the translator from time to time. That's not what he said. Which, know. which is interesting because it's kind of the, the bad translation, which is what was part right. of the reason that he got detained to begin with. It was a um, systemic challenge throughout this case. And, and you know what happens, and I've had this happen in trials that I've had here in Montgomery County, is I represented an individual that was charged with capital murder. And when the translator translates here in the United States, they take an oath to translate fair and correctly. So even if the translation is wrong, the jury, and if they do speak Spanish, the jury is sworn to abide by the sworn translation because the translator takes an oath that they're translating correctly. So as a lawyer, I've found it challenging because I've had to object to the translator's translation when it came down to a critical point as to whether my client was either given an instruction or a party to this aggravated robbery, which ultimately invented, you know, allowed it to be a capital murder. Um, and the translator, in my opinion, was not accurately translating. And unfortunately, the laws that we have don't allow somebody to say, you can say that it's wrong, but the jury is instructed to follow the sworn translation. So that would be a, a, at least when you have somebody that speaks English that is a fact finder and decision maker, that's great that they're able right. to come in and do that. So that right. would be a. Really and it was necessary in this case because the translation was in some cases so deficient. So deficient and, and possibly so inaccurate that it could have. The main, the main problem we had was that Larry had a lot of very detailed um, information to provide and a lot of very meaningful explanations for his, the decisions that he made along the way. And the translator was not doing an adequate job at conveying those details and the real nuances of his explanations. But the, the lead judge uh, was picking it up, and I, and I believe that she was explaining it to the other judges on the panel. So we're going to take a break to hear from our listeners. And at the um, when we come back after the break, we're going to hear about how that trial and the fight for Larry Davis's life ended and how he ultimately was able to leave the Dominican Republic a free man and how you were able to be integral in his freedom as well as the freedom of so many accused folks. Um, you're doing a great job for the citizens, the accused citizens of not only the United States, but folks of the United States that end up in other countries. So we're really proud to have you as a member of the Defense Bar. Thank you. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. Hey guys, I'm Joey Savage. Corey DLG. We are Nerd Thug Radio. Catch us every Monday from 1 to 3 and check out our website, nerdthugradio.com. We like to talk about quilting, horseback riding, and baking quiche. Actually, we don't, but we do like talking nerdy to you. That's right. Every Monday from 1 to 3 p.m., hashtag talking nerdy to you. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And at the break, we, we heard from some listeners and got some messages from some listeners about just the disbelief about what happened to this Woodlands man. How did this happen? How can this be prevented? And we're here with Sean Buckley talking about how he helped free Larry Davis, who was a Woodlands man charged with smuggling, trafficking, um, nearly a thousand pounds of drugs out of the Dominican Republic. 
What happened with that trial when it eventually took place, Sean? 2,000 pounds of drugs, <laughs> almost 1,000 oh, kilos. That's right. Excuse me. Almost 1,000 kilos. Thank you for the correction. I don't want to minimize the, the, volume. <laughs> the volume. We talked about um, it before the break. At least $100 million worth of drugs. Yeah. So anyway, the, um, the trial ended in an acquittal. Um, some of the, uh, Larry went to- We call that a two-word verdict, not two guilty. Two-word verdict, right. And <laughs> Larry were- went to trial with some of the others who were on the ship at the time the boat was detained. They were convicted and sentenced to terms of five years in prison due to their clear connection with the drugs. Larry was acquitted and immediately allowed to leave the country. Well, what's interesting is for that volume of drugs, you were saying at the break that somebody here in the United States would be facing a life-to-life sentence. How did those other individuals only get five years? You know, I think that there are a number of factors that go into it. On one hand, as I alluded to earlier before the break, I think there is a greater humanity in the criminal justice system in the Dominican Republic than there often is here uh, in the United States. People really want vengeance and, and punishment here. And, and there it's more of a, a kind of political economic decision of, well, we have a problem in society. How do we curtail it? And I didn't see the type of vengeance, um, feelings of vengeance and persecution displayed. Well, certainly the folks that ultimately got the shorter sentences, those folks, they didn't suspect were the masterminds right. or know where right. were they involved in the train, you know, the planning of the hundred million dollar Victory, I'm sure they were poor folks. Yeah, they local were just folks. working on the boat, and that was their their paid job, and nobody claimed that they got any cut of the action. Um, by action, I mean the drugs. The drugs. Um, so it was a um, it was a very interesting trial, um, and the, the rules of evidence there are much looser. If you want to put a document into evidence, you just hand in the document. You don't have to do what we call authenticating or... Uh, or establishing any kind of predicate or foundation for it, uh, as long as somebody's there to testify about what it is, it comes in. Uh, and hearsay is often admissible, uh, you, you know, even if it seems unreliable. So that can cut both ways. And that that's interesting, too, is that oftentimes, or unless there's an exception in the courts around the United States, if you want to offer something that somebody else said, unless it meets an ex- exception, it's not generally admissible. Right. And I think part of the reason for that is because they don't have a jury system. Uh, when you have a jury system, you have to have very strict rules for what the jury can consider and how. And there, I think the philosophy is, well, everything comes in and the judge is uh, sophisticated enough in the legal system to either ignore it or assess some level of weight to it. Right. They can say this statement seems not credible because it came from what somebody said somebody said right, versus, right. Um, you know, the jury could just say, well, this is what we heard and not know the rules. And and once they hear it, they can't unhear it. Right. Exactly. Or not have the legal insight to understand why it's, it shouldn't be given as much weight as, as another statement or a statement to the contrary. So not only um, did Larry Davis get to go home, what happened with his boat? Did he ultimately get his boat back? Well, the boat is uh, still in the Dominican Republic. There's a civil action. Uh, The, the judges ordered the boat released, but that's still pending. So uh, we're working on it. Okay, so ultimately he's free, his boat's still there, but certainly when it comes time to go back and pick the boat up, is it realistic to say that Mr. Davis probably won't be the one going to pick it up? Someone else will. I volunteered to go do it, but I need someone to drive it because I don't know. (laughs) You don't know how to captain a boat. Right. Nor am I licensed to do so. (laughs) (laughs) Nor are you licensed to do so. 
Um, but you feel confident that you plus someone who's able to sure. master a vessel would be able to get it out of the Dominican Republic sure. when, when that time comes. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Fun little uh, junket to take down there to pick up this boat and sail it to Panama or somewhere. What is going on with Mr. Davis now that he's back? Is he a changed man? Is Has it ultimately completely changed the course of his life? What's he doing business-wise now? Is he working on a book? Well, you know, I, I don't think he's a changed man in the sense of who he is. I think he's still a strong man of, uh, of his faith and his beliefs. He has become even a stronger father to his family, I think, realizing what it's like to be away from them. Um, this is not someone who's been, who has damaged goods. Uh, he was a great guy to begin he's with. He's still guy. a super guy. It's just he maybe takes every day, doesn't take every day for granted. I think so. And he may not travel internationally as much, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know realistically. But, uh, no, I think Larry, um, is, uh, uh, is going to be just fine. He, um, is thinking about what he wants to do business wise, dabbling in a couple of things. He's very entrepreneurial, so he won't have trouble doing that. He was, he formerly traded on the Chicago mercantile exchange before going to work with his father. So he's a smart guy. Maybe he can give you some advice on whether to buy Bitcoin. Right. I, you know, I, I'm staying away from Bitcoin, but I, I you know, that's a good idea. <laughs> so you idea. would take his advice if he told you to stay away from it. I'm Certainly. saying he's yeah. somebody that you would, you would <laughs> right. trust may have some, right. some good brains and knowledge about right. that. Well, Sean, we so much appreciate having you on the show. Justice is Blonde today, right after Christmas. I know um, it was a great year for you. And I know you have another exciting thing that you're working on and you were also integral from another so this case, you're helping an accused citizen as far as a defendant's rights. You're freeing an innocent person. That's got to feel so good. But another big fight that you've had in 2017 and end of 2016 is you actually helped a victim's rights bill come into place and change the course of how victims are dealt with uh, based on your defense of a, of a victim who was also incarcerated. I mean, talk right. about people that that shouldn't be incarcerated. You actually were integral in, in helping and are still on board helping with a victim that was a rape victim. Yeah, that was a very gratifying project to work on and, and it, it remains so. And uh, so we hope that we can hear in the future from you about Jenny's Law and how you were able to single-handedly ultimately get rights for victims that weren't previously in place and just another great, job by Sean Buckley is helping the not only the accused citizens, but any citizens of the state, great state of Texas and the United States in this case. So we're really happy to have you on the show, Sean. You're doing a great job. Keep fighting the great fight and and uh, keep justice blonde. Thanks, Andrea. I'll, I'll dye my hair before I come back next time. <laughs> Just some highlights, perhaps. Okay, got it. Happy New Year. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And if you happen to find yourself at the wrong holiday party and in the backseat of a patrol car, call 4A Discount Bail Bonds at 936-539-4444. They will unhook you up and get you back to your friends and your family.